0: It's Monday, September 25th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Indre is off this week. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter, at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. And I encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps so many more people discover our show. I have a massive collection of science coffee table books, ones filled with beautiful imagery and stories from history. My favorite has always been Moon, which included retouched photos from the Apollo missions. Well, I have a new book to add to this collection, Where the Animals Go, a new book on wildlife tracking by James Cheshire and Oliver Uberti. James is a senior lecturer and geographer at the University of College London, where he helps scientists processing the staggering amount of data they collect in the field. Oliver is a former senior design editor at National Geographic, and he's probably designed some of the most beautiful visualizations ever seen in the magazine. What emerged from their collaboration is a stunning visual guide, On how animals migrate and move in the environment, paired with stories from scientists monitoring these animals results in one of the most unique science tales I've ever read. Imagine tracking the daily commute of a chimpanzee troop in Africa as they decide where to search for food while avoiding all the human traffic out there. Where albatross flights as they circle the entire Arctic, searching for food and mates, and all of this done through the eyes of individual animals. One of my favorite quotes from the book is this, quote, Location is everything, and the way we study this is the same whether it relates to an ant, a diving whale, or a person with a smartphone, end quote. It's just one thought that left me with a newfound appreciation for cartography, helping tell our story on this wonderful planet. So that'll be our interview this week. With that, let's take a short break and be back with my interview with Oliver Uberti and James Cheshire. Hey, everyone. Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac here. I just wanted to take a quick minute to mention a couple things. First, I wanted to echo something that Kishore said at the beginning of the show, which is that if you want an easy way to show your support for Inquiring Minds, rating and reviewing us on iTunes is a great way to do that. It just takes a couple seconds and it helps us a ton. If you want to go a step beyond that to keep us on the air, you can support us directly over at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash inquiring minds. And to those of you who already support us over on Patreon, I just want to say thank you. We truly would not be able to keep doing this without your support. James and Oliver, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having us. It's Great to be here. This is an absolutely stunning book and and not at all what I expected, partially because I have a six-year-old and when I see a book titled Where the Animals Go, I have a certain expectation of what's inside but when i open this up uh this combination of narrative storytelling uh and these incredibly rich detailed maps like showing migrations stunning even flight patterns of vultures um were kind of unbelievable and represented such a huge set of data how did you even begin to gather some of the the data that led to
2: these incredible visualizations? Uh, We we probably had a couple of approaches, really. I think one was, um, you know, a legacy of ideas and stories that um, uh, Oliver in particular was familiar with from his um, previous life as um, a senior graphics editor at National Geographic magazine and thinking about some of the stories and work that that, uh, they've been featuring over the years um so we we had some stories that particularly i think the elephants um were we we were keen to feature we knew they had to go in um and then the uh, remainder of the stories was a combination of you know searching the academic journals for interesting uh data sets that have been uh, published but also speaking to researchers so um we identified a few initial researchers we wanted to talk to and then you know, the last question in any interview we had with them was, you know, who would you recommend we speak to? Who's doing something really interesting and innovative that you'd like to see featured in this book? And um, as soon as, you know, everyone started giving us the same set of names, uh, we knew that we'd, um, you know, we'd would we done a pretty good job of uh, capturing um, the many, many different kinds of research and researchers that, um you know, is currently happening at the moment in the world of sort of logging and um, zoology.
1: A great example of that is uh, when I was in Kenya with Ian Douglas Hamilton from Save the Elephants, and I had this preconception that some of the people like Ian who are pioneers of tagging and uh, animal tracking research ever, going back to the 60s with uh, VHF and radio tagging all the way up into GPS and and, and current technologies, I had this preconception that they were familiar with everything that was happening in the animal world. And what became clear, the more and more we talked to different scientists is that they're really focused, uh, for the most part, on the species they're studying. And they were fascinated when they heard about what whale scientists were learning or what oil bird, someone who was studying oil birds or someone who was studying ants. And uh, we really got excited when we realized that this book could potentially bring new science and, and new information and new technologies to people who are doing this tagging and biologging research
0: already. The team up uh, of the two of you, which bring really different skill sets, you know, a researcher and um, and somebody who specializes in visualizations that seems novel to me how How did you work together to to craft some of these these incredible stories that we see? when I worked
1: at national geographic uh we were it's a very visual magazine and I just developed a uh, a way of working there where you're designing how the entire package looks first and then you kind of um, you know, write the
0: stories to fit the space and, and design the maps to fit the space.
1: But you're you're always thinking of how the entire ensemble is going to come together. And that's really uh, the core of how James and I build our books. I mean, from the get-go, when we start on a book, uh, on one hand, we're sending out feelers, doing tons of research, as James already mentioned, trying to gather the stories, trying to gather the data sets, see what's out there. But at the same time, on my end, I'm kind of coming up with the look of the book, the typography, the dimensions, the layout. And as we have that set, we start, you know, as we get data sets in, we start testing them in layouts and seeing how we could crop the maps and how we could fit them together. And and ideally, what could this look like? And once we have that sort of visual draft in mind, James sets to work on the data processing of the live data, the raw data, once it comes in, and we start building out that vision and refining it and refining it and refining it. James could talk to you about this incredible way he came up with to make the base maps that uh many readers might take for granted, but we're all custom generated for this book.
2: Yeah, I mean I think the key thing about getting the design sorted initially is that a lot of my work in terms of, you know, the contribution to the book was actually a, a data reduction exercise. So we talk a lot about big data and how there's um, more data available than ever before. And this is certainly true of, of um, you know, the, the stories and that we feature. But um, in order to, to kind of extract the key themes and to get the messages across, you have to re- reduce the amount of data to the really essential components and that speeds up the processing that helps a lot with the visualization and it also means that um you know you can bring in other elements such as automation um which is really important so um by that i mean for example you know most of the the maps in in the book need some kind of terrain uh element associated with them so that may be mountains that uh, mountain lions or or wolves are are crossing, or it may actually be undersea trenches that um, seals are swimming over. Um, and in fact, uh, the other thing was uh, we looked at were kind of movements of air and water, uh, tidal currents, and those kinds of things as well for uh, for birds. So those elements um, are all available from satellite data now. And the way you process them is similar every time. So I was able to build some scripts that took the the satellite data, the imagery we needed, um, it it ran them through and and it created these base maps that matched the design and themes uh, in the book. But, um, you know, I I probably had um, 250, 300 gigabytes worth of. Uh, satellite imagery uh, for the book as my starting point, point. Um, and as soon as I knew the crops and the the layouts that Oliver and and I were working to, then I could start reducing that down. I could start clipping out the bit the areas that we needed, and only working with those, and that sped up the the, the whole process.
0: And that's two hundred fifty gigabytes of just satellite data. I I am can only imagine how large the the total data size you're working with because there is some really dense data that you that you pared down into these visualizations. So it must be enormous. I want to track down to the the inspiration of this book. And and it really tracks to one particular animal, an animal named Annie.
1: Absolutely. Annie. It's a sad story. It's a sad story that stuck with me for years and years and years. Uh, Came from incredible story by. uh, Ecologist Mike Fay and photographer uh, Michael Nichols. um, They worked on that story back when I was at Geographic. And I was asked to help out with uh, a map in that story. And one of the the novel things they were going to try and do, this is back in 2006, the story came out in 2007, was they were going to show the GPS track of one elephant on this map. And that was something that I had never seen before. And uh, as I talked to the photographer and learned more and more about what was happening. This was the first time a map had ever connected me to uh, the life of an individual animal. And what's so tragic is that, you know, a a thousand miles into the GPS track into Annie's journey uh, over the summer of 2006, uh, after about 86 days, Annie's track stops. And by the time the, Ecologist Mike Fay could get back to Chad, where uh, this this tracking took place outside of uh, Zekama National Park, um, to check on it. They went to the last GPS point recorded and found the carcass of Annie and a couple of her companions who had clearly been poached. And I never forgot that story. I mean, here was visual proof, and it wasn't about following a red line on a map. It was about following Annie. and. We realize there is power in connecting people to individual animals, and that's exactly what biologging does. And we wanted to share as many of those stories from land, sea, and sky with readers as possible.
0: Let's dive into a few of those stories, those incredible tales. And let's start with the killer whales, which is uh, one of the stories that, that James, that you were uh, deeply familiar with because you were embedded with this, this group for a number of years. Can you talk to us about how you developed this incredible
2: story around the
0: uh, these whales yeah so the
2: um interesting thing about this story actually is that it it all it all came together very very last minute, so we were um keen to bring in some because of the um the breadth of stories that that we cover in the book we couldn't spend time a huge amount of time with every set of researchers, so um we chose to focus on three. Key um, stories in land, sea, and sky, and, and spend a lot of time just getting our heads around a particular study or particular group of researchers. And um, this uh, this group um, working in uh, Iceland have spent a number of years looking at uh, the behaviours of, of killer whales. And killer whales are interesting because um, they have very specific feeding. Uh, behaviors and, and, and preferences. Um, there, are uh, resident killer whales that tend to, um, eat fish, for example. And then there are kind of more nomadic whales that, that, that track up and down the coastline. Um, and they tend to eat uh, mammals. They're known as transients. And these behaviors have been very well, uh, formalized in, in the U S particularly on the West coast. You know, the different groups are, are well known to researchers, but, um, over on uh, my side of the uh, Atlantic, it's much less uh, well known because these these whales spend a lot of time out at sea, and so there are less pairs of eyes uh, watching them. And um, Philippa Samara and her her team were interested in this one particular group that spent some time uh, spend their winters off the west coast of Iceland. Uh, they then swim round to the the the, su- the southern part of Iceland. Uh, around this area called the Westman Islands. But then a smaller group actually break away and swim uh, down to northern Scotland. And um, thanks to Facebook, uh, researchers have actually been able to monitor the whales' behaviour uh, online because as these whales come close to shore, particularly in Scotland, uh, Uh, bird watchers and uh, uh, environmentalists and people like that are filming them. And they started filming really interesting behaviors um, where these whales were were trying to hunt uh, seals and and seabirds and things like that. I like how you said
0: thanks to Facebook without even a hint of irony
2: that it is. (laughs) (laughs) no,
1: It's true. We call that essay in the book, the whales we watch on Facebook because I mean, who would have thought, but, the random snaps that a, a tourist on a whale watching ship takes of a killer whale might actually contribute to killer whale research.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we um, had a, a, a particularly bad day um, with the researchers. So um, because their boats had broken down and, and so we were, we were in this uh, kind of this haul in the westman islands uh with with um seemingly nothing happening in terms of data collection because the researchers still want to be out in the water taking photos of some of these whales um identifying them understanding the groups but we were sat in this uh hall with as i see for to me anyway nothing nothing to do I'm feeling a bit frustrated um but actually that's when a, a major breakthrough kind of happened in, in terms of uh, the interest in the research because someone uh, down in uh, Scotland had filmed uh, part of this group of whales um, uh, trying to feed on a, a seal. And thanks to the big catalogs of um, uh, images that the researchers have accumulated, they could recognize the whale. They knew where it went in the winter and that it was one of the ones that swam down Scotland in the summer. And they uh, kind of had this this hunch was was certainly paying off that, essentially they they eat both fish and mammals, and that for killer whales is a slightly uh weird thing to do um, compared to kind of the the standard uh resident and transient uh, uh distinction that exists so this is a really kind of exciting um, area of research uh particularly um uh looking at killer whales because you know the researchers want to know if they've always been behaving that way, or if there are particular food shortages that mean that they're changing their behaviours. And the nice thing about the the group in Scotland is they're kind of a, they've got celebrity status in the UK, because we don't get much, you know, we don't have that many uh, large mammals come to our shores. And and these guys are are quite charismatic, and they like to swim close to shore. Um, And so lots of people get to spot them. And um, they occasionally make the the kind of uh, news and national news, in fact, um, as people see more and more of them.
0: I believe a humpback whale that ended up swimming under the Golden Gate Bridge a, a few weeks ago ended up stopping traffic um, as so many people um, started snapping pics. So I understand that well. Um, one of the more interesting examples in the book is about ants because it led to one of the kind of the strangest visualizations in the book about a researcher that was really creating an artificial nest of ants, and I was wondering if you could take us into that because it also might represent the biggest data set of all of the the pieces in the book
2: yeah so the the ants uh, example was one of our favorites yes as you as you say we had um uh, the smallest animal or one of the smallest animals we actually have um these tiny Daphnia shrimp, which are, are smaller than ants featured, but certainly the maybe the second smallest animal we feature, gathered over 2 billion data points uh, for the researchers. And it also shows the kind of, you know, you imagine animal researchers up to their necks in uh, swamps trying to capture um, and tag these uh, seeming elusive species. But They also go to other extremes, and in this case, this was uh, gluing uh, QR codes to the backs of an entire uh, ant's nest, or in fact, several ant's nests. So the researchers set up a tray um, that uh, created an ant's nest, essentially. They trained um, high-resolution cameras on the ants, and and because each ant had its own uh, QR code, they were able to track the movements of that ant and its interactions with uh, all the other ants in the colony. So you can imagine how, you know, it, doesn't take a, it only takes a few ants to start generating lots and lots of interactions, um, and you create this enormous data set, which enables them to um, look at how the ants change jobs over time. So um, they uh, transition. Now, Oliver, you have to help me out here. I can't remember what the transitions yes. were. They,
1: yeah, they start off as nurses, really nurturing the queen and her brood. The youngest ants are helping out, you know, helping the queen. And then as they grow older, they take on a job as cleaners, where they're going around the periphery of the nest, removing bits of rubbish to a, to a garbage pile in the corner of the nest. And then the oldest ants, over the course of the study, became foragers that were leaving the nest to bring food back for the entire, uh, for the entire colony. And what we were able to visualize by pulling all this data together is that those three jobs have distinct geographic footprints within the nest. And we show, you know, the, the cluster of nurses in yellow around the brood. And then the cleaners, we use red to show them around the the edges of the nest, removing rubbish. And then you see this hot spot of blue around the nest entrance, where all the foragers are coming and going.
2: And I think I think one of the most amazing things is even though they had very distinct areas or domains, um, information could travel throughout the colony very quickly, just throughout just through these these kind of touching interactions. So. I think it was within within an hour. Eighty nine percent of the the colony would have uh, received a certain particular could have received a certain message based on these interactions.
0: It's sort of a, uh, I, I mean this is a stretch but it's almost a visualization of, of the neural net that exists amongst this, this ant network and that's why it's so fascinating is because you can see so many interconnections going on at the same time. Uh, I have to say the one that struck it, that stuck with me is the one about baboons, and it's partially because I anthropomorphize them. I know I'm not supposed to anthropomorphize animals here, but there's this uh, story of, of tracking a um a, a baboon family, a, a brood, as they sort of woke up in the morning, uh, went through some um, basic daily habits and then went off foraging and ended up making some decisions and you developed a map that really mapped them as if they were going on a morning commute, which I found utterly fascinating and relatable.
2: Yeah. Well that, that very much is the kind of idea that the researcher, uh, Damien Farine and the group he was working with there kind of, um, that's how they introduced the story to me when I, when I first uh, met with them. And it's this, you know the key thing really was that the for the baboons they they had a particular area that they liked to to sleep in and then um the best foraging ground was um the other side of a, a stretch of open land that they didn't like spending time in because there were um it was a is pastoral land so there were uh, farmers and people like that that kind of harassed the baboons and um uh, kept them moving so we had this brilliant situation where You've got the baboons waking up, and then um, this sudden moment where they decide: right now is the time we're going to make a break for it. We're going to run across uh, this open land to the area that you know we want to be today, where we do our foraging. And the nice thing about this story actually is it it works on on two levels. That it works on kind of a zoomed out level where you're looking at the daily routine of uh the, the group of baboons you can see the day that they don't make it back to the nest uh they're they kind of preferred sleeping trees because there was a, a predator in the area um you get the different kind of extents of their, their their trips but then you can zoom right in um and see the decisions get taken on a second by second basis so this again was an enormous um data set it had over 20 million data points in it And it's that moment, that moment when one baboon says, right, I'm going to head off to the left or to the right, um, that the researchers were interested in because they wanted to know if the others would follow them or whether they would take a kind of a compromised route. Um, And the findings seem to be that it's it's a fairly sort of consensus-based group. So although there's an alpha male and an alpha female, those guys aren't necessarily calling the shots when it comes to uh, what the group does across the day. And in fact, um, the moment when the baboons make a a break for it, when they decide they're going to go for it across this open land, um, it was actually kind of initiated by um, a fairly juvenile baboon and, and, and um, and their mother, or an adult female at least, and a juvenile. They're the ones that make the initial run for it. And you can actually see them loop back slightly just for a second Uh, to wait and see if the other guys are going to follow them. And then suddenly all of them shoot straight across the the open land uh, to the other side of this uh, river where they can begin their foraging.
0: What I actually found fascinating about it is it struck me very similar to an analysis I saw on a a Tour de France race uh, on how the bikers decide to make breakaways and and how the group, the the peloton, the group is, is sort of reacting to uh, the decision of a of a small set of individuals as they they try to break away, obviously a very different context, but very similarly modeled in terms of the group thing uh, you know I have to say after reading through you know fifty plus examples of this, so much of what this book is, even though it's gorgeous and it has all of these incredible tales in it, is really about the process of science and and how this data is gathered and how this tracking is done and and I, I'm sort of left with, with two facts. It, one, that scientists really hack together lots of pieces of equipment to do this kind of of tracking, but also that the data garnered from individual animals is enormous. A, and to talk about them as individuals is quite important in this context.
1: Absolutely. Um, first of all, your point is dead on. I mean, the innovation of these scientists is staggering. It's one of the most creative Uh, fields out there right now um it goes by lots of names movement ecology applied ecology but every species is different the 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 device that you would put on an elephant is going to be very different from uh, that you put on a shark um that you put on a bird that weighs only a couple of grams and so depending on your study how many months the study is going to go for your battery life what data you're trying to collect how frequently you're trying to collect it uh, the technology has to be custom tailored to every species and every study, and that just requires a lot of innovation and a lot of co- collaboration between scientists and companies like Wildlife Computers, who develop a lot of, the, of these technologies.
0: The other thing that that stuck with me beyond the the scientists is really that this is a story about individual animals, even though we actually oftentimes focus on a story of of them in packs or herds or even. A, a, even a larger population uh, you're oftentimes tracking that individual behavior which leads to some interesting conclusions and it, is that something that you're really trying to elucidate this idea of individual versus group dynamics
2: uh, yeah i mean i think it's an interesting example really of that that kind of contradicts this idea that um, data is a very is a fairly anonymous Entity in in many ways. So you know, often you know, we 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 as humans are sometimes concerned, of, you know, about privacy implications and things like that about our data. But generally, I think one of the biggest you know criticisms over uh, you know decades of using uh, you know, quantitative information to capture human behaviour has been that it's impersonal, that it doesn't get the contradictions, that it doesn't um, you know we, we're not predictable things. Um, but this this data, this technology for, for animals enables, you know, you the researchers to be there all the time. Um, it's moving them away from direct observation that they can only do at certain times of day and in certain locations to monitoring the animals' movements and behavior all the time. And, you know, we needed the researchers' help to, to kick us off on these stories, to tell us what's important. To, particular animals and what's significant in in terms of their behavior and stuff like that. But really, they're only beginning, the researchers themselves are only beginning to understand quite what the implications are of of, of the data they're discovering. And um, as you say, I think it becomes a very um, powerful tool, both to the researcher to communicate or to understand what an individual is doing, and, and, and crucially, how that individual interacts with other individuals of the same species and predators and humans and um, their prey and so on, but also it becomes a, a really important communication tool that, um, you know, for example, I, I, I was, I'm not, I'm no, um, uh, ornithologist or, 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 birder in, in any sense, but, um, Doing this book, I was—I just became so fascinated and where where birds, the birds in my garden, where they'd come from and where they were going to. And before that, I saw them, I guess, as a single data point, one bird in a tree. I had no real interest or understanding in where it come from or where it was going to. But thanks to, you know, some of the stories that we've covered on them, dodging tornadoes or the long-distance migrations they uh, these these animals take. You know, there's Arctic turns in reservoirs. Um, near me in 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 london passing over london you know you think well um the, these these animals are going to be flying thousands of kilometers uh you know they may set off tomorrow uh to do that and it just gives you this much greater appreciation of the complexity and uh, uh, of the natural world and, and and also a much better understanding of how you know we as humans impact on it um and how we can do more to preserve it. Let's build on that for a second,
0: because the epilogue of this book is entitled Where the Humans Go. And there's there's sort of a, a quote that stuck with me um, from that epilogue. Uh, quote, location is everything, and the way we study this is the same whether it relates to an ant, a diving whale, or a person with a smartphone. And uh, I can see the direction you're going there. Uh, it, really are we entering a point where the the tracking of us as, as humans is going to lead to insights in the same way that we saw insights laid out in this book
2: well yes i think well i think so and i think the the kind of my day job really is 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 looking at human movement and data and on the technical level the data formats are the same the, the software is the same the algorithms are the same um whether you are looking at yeah the, the The home range of a particular uh, wolf uh, versus um, looking at you know distances people are willing to travel to a certain supermarket um, these things are the algorithms are the same the, the processing is, is is very similar and I think what's so fascinating about the interactions between um, the biologging world and the human world is that we can start to develop algorithms we can train algorithms say looking at baboon decision making example that we used before we can train our algorithms on that really high resolution gps data and then we can see if it works for the tour de france um, example or we can take insights from that and we can apply it to the the animal data Um, and so actually we've got this you know, uh, there aren't many people doing it, but there is this really vibrant crossover between the the various data sets and the technology is the same as well. You know, the, the, the accelerometer, the compass, the GPS in your smartphone, it's going to be the same as the ones that um, I'll I'll put on these animal tracking tags um, and the the data feeds they, they send back are the same as well. So there's this interesting thing where essentially, you know, Silicon Valley it is probably one of the main competitors now for um, you know biologging researchers because you know the people that have these skills that can work with these data um, could go off and work for a large uh, tech company um, or they could spend their time doing these kind of res- this kind of research.
1: A key point that we make in the book is James and I aren't biologists. He's a geographer. I'm a designer. But that's the beauty of the animal tracking revolution. Is that it invites more people from more disciplines into conservation? Uh, scientists are just inundated with the data that they're collecting. Um, a week long study could generate millions of data points. And when you just plot that out, then the software it becomes a giant hairball, a tangle of tracks. That's not something you can pull cool a lot of information from. So if you really want to tell stories, if you really want to make people care about individual animals, care about conservation, care about protecting the places where animals go, you need help parsing through the data and pulling out those key stories. And that's why you know, we need engineers, we need designers, we need statisticians, we need cartographers. We, there's a whole range of creative people, and especially in Silicon Valley, who could be helping scientists and helping conserve
0: uh, wildlife. I think that's a, a beautiful sentiment that there is help to be had if you're willing to ask for it uh and there's so many disciplines that have the ability uh to really help science in this uh in this new period uh that we seem to be entering in uh James and Oliver thank you so much for joining us on inquiring minds thank you thanks so that's it for another episode I want to thank you for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds, and we'd especially like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Stefan Meyer Ewald, David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Kyle Raihala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Those supporters have gotten a sneak peek at our new web series, Science in Progress, where Indre and I travel to some of our favorite labs across the world. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you could support us at patreon.com inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your migration pattern to and from work and anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari. Indre will be back next week. See you then. My son had a gift with technology